0: So good afternoon everyone it's been a good day at paid week first good day huh yeah that's right all right let's hopefully end it on a good note all right my name is david cosio and i'm board certified clinical health psychologist and i'm here to talk about pain catastrophizing making a mountain out of a mohill now i just want to take a moment and look at the picture that's on the screen because it took me a long time to find this Um, And so I wanna give you a minute so you can enjoy the mountain, the molehill that's dressed up as a mountain. All right, a little bit about myself. So as I said, I'm a board certified clinical health psychologist. And I work at the Jesse Brown VA Medical Center in Chicago. Um, I work in their outpatient uh, pain clinic as the pain psychologist. I also work in their 12 week CARF accredited interdisciplinary program as the psychologist there. However, that being said, I am not here on behalf of the VA. I am not speaking on behalf of the VA. I'm just here as a psychologist, just trying to impart a little bit of wisdom that i may have picked up in the last 10 years. Um, So we've got a couple of objectives this afternoon. We're going to uh, describe the construct of pain catastrophizing. We're gonna describe the impact of pain catastrophizing on chronic non-cancer pain. We're gonna list the screening tools currently available to assess for pain catastrophizing. And then we're gonna review the evidence-based interventions targeting pain catastrophizing. Now, before I even go into this, I want to take a moment and talk about the sensitive these sensitive issues we're going to be talking about catastrophic thinking and we're going to be talking about fear avoidance behaviors Um, and when you do talk about these two constructs what tends to happen is that patients who have chronic pain and chronic pain providers tend to have a negative reaction to this discussion right Now, when it comes to chronic pain patients, oftentimes the reason why they have such a negative reaction is because of the stigma that comes along with talking about mental health. Um, And they don't want to be pigeonholed into feeling like they have a mental health issue. Um, That, in turn, the primary care provider or frontline provider notices that the patient reacts in a negative way, and so what do they do? They kind of pull back, and they don't talk about it anymore now it's really important that we take the time to kind of address what this is this is um, because this does have a negative effect and it can perpetuate the experience of chronic pain Um, and so it's important that we not only address the concept but we also address the stigma related to mental health uh, and to you know assess these individuals so that way we can get them into the appropriate treatments So I wanted to talk about that before we get into this, because people have some reactions to this topic. Now, there's an array of different coping strategies that have been looked at in the literature. There's actually seven. These include diverting attention, coping self-statements. There's also reinterpreting pain, ignoring sensations. There's hoping, there's praying. There's also increasing behavioral activities and pain catastrophizing. But pain catastrophizing has had the most research attention out of all these different coping strategies. Now, I want to give you a short history lesson. The first time that we uh, find pain catastrophizing anywhere in the literature was in a traditional Chinese medicine paper called The Essays of the Golden Chamber, which was written in 200 A.D., Now, when they describe pain catastrophizing, they describe it as feelings of worry, of repetitive thoughts, helplessness, and an exaggerated response to pain that was often found in females. Now, Udall, in 1536, also said that we as human beings tend to make mountains out of molehills. This is where the title of the presentation today came from. Uh, and then we also see the pain catastrophizing represented in the art and in literature. So when we look at literature in, ni- in 1889, it was Guy Poussant, who is a French writer. I hope I didn't butcher his name, um, wrote a poem or a short story called On the Water, which was all about his migraines. And he described them as being an at- atrocious torment. Uh, worst in the world, driving one mad and scattering of thoughts. And it was actually Frida Kahlo, who is a Mexican artist, who drew and painted some beautiful artwork that it kind of shows how she handled or how she viewed her pain as being broken and hopeless. As you can see, these are two of her uh, paintings that, that are pretty famous that are out there. Now, catastrophizing, the term catastrophizing comes from the father of rational emotive therapy, which is Robert Ellis. This is him on the top. Um, and he believed that we have irrational irrational thoughts, and these thoughts are what cause us psychological distress. Aaron Beck, his contemporary, was the father of cognitive therapy, and he changed it from being catastrophizing to being magnifying or minimizing. And again, he said that this was a maladaptive coping style that tends to be common among people who have depression and anxiety. And so um, these two are kind of the fathers of catastrophizing. And so what is this? What we know is that psychosocial factors are becoming increasingly important when looking at how pain becomes chronic. Now, there are other variables that are kind of similar to catastrophizing and fear avoidance, and those include pain anxiety, fear of pain, and helplessness in relation to pain. There's also other negative constructs that are part of the schema or the way we look at this and so depression anxiety uh, anxiety sensitivity worry and neuroticism all kind of hang together now the definition of what pain catastrophizing has changed throughout the years so it was first defined as an exaggerated negative mental state uh, that brought bear during an actual or anticipa- anticipated pain experience now that has since evolved and now it's a tendency to magnify threat value of a pain stimulus and to feel helpless in the context of pain and in relative inability to inhibit pain related thoughts in anticipation of during and following a pain encounter and the most the newest way of defining pain catastrophizing is from Gatchel and his colleagues and that is the uh looking at pain catastrophizing as a, a appraisal or a set of maladaptive beliefs. So there's three components to catastrophizing. There's the three component model that has been used in research and, and in thousands and thousands of studies. And the three components are rumination, magnification, and helplessness. So Dr. Uh, 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 Ravi this morning mentioned this, but I wanna take a little bit more time talking about this when it comes to rumination rumination is when you keep thinking about something over and over and over again and i started thinking about when do i tend to do that and i do that when i'm angry i can't believe that guy just cut me off can you believe that guy cut me off man that guy really doesn't know how to drive why does he not look at the side? all day every day talking to all my friends about what happened with the guy who cut me off right that is an example of rumination Uh, And a thought that would go along with that is, I can't stop thinking about how much my pain hurts. That's an example of rumination. The second part of the model is magnification. That's exactly what the name implies. It's magnifying. It's making it bigger. So today at lunch, I was kind of thinking about, like, what example could I use for this? And while I'm looking at my stuff, I noticed I had a dot on my hand. And I was like, I didn't have that dot yesterday. Where did this dot come from? Is this skin cancer? Oh my God, do I need to go to the doctor? Oh my God, I have skin cancer. And then I thought about it for a minute and I said, wait a minute. And I took some saliva and rubbed it off and it was ink, right? What I did is I took one thing and I kind of ran with it. You can see how that happened, right? Um, and so a and thought that goes with that is I'm afraid that something serious might happen. And then the third part of the component of catastrophizing is helplessness. And that's when you feel like you don't have the coping that is necessary to deal with the situation that you are facing. And so a thought that might go with that is, there's nothing I can do to reduce the intensity of my pain. Now, the next question I usually get about pain catastrophizing is, is this a skill or is it a state or a trait? And the answer is, it could be both right some research look at it as a state and as a state it's a reaction that's measured during or immediately after an exposure to a noxious stimulus or it could be a trait um and when it's used as a trait it's when we recall negative feelings and cognitions related to a painful event now if you look at the research most of the research treats it as if, as if it is a trait right and so when you compare cis male and cis females, what we find is that cis females tend to report or tend to engage in more pain uh, catastrophizing behaviors. When we compare each other between races, what we find that is that African American and Asian Americans tend to engage in pain catastrophizing more than Caucasians. And then when it comes to people in terms of age, what we find is that the younger individuals tend to really focus on the emotional components of pain. And as we age and we get older and wiser, we tend to focus more on the actual physical pain condition. Um, So what I like to do now is kind of go over the neuroscience. There are some neuroscience studies that have shown that pain catastrophizing is real. Um, there are different parts of the brain that are triggered, there is genetic uh, variations that can explain why we engage in pain catastrophizing And there is neurochemical changes that occur. Now I'm not a neuroscientist, uh, but I'm going to do my best to explain what this is saying So when we do functional MRIs, so that's when people are going through that kind of imaging there are several parts of the brain that are triggered when someone is engaged in pain catastrophizing. And these areas of the brain are responsible for different experiences of pain. And so they're, they're related to in the anticipation of pain, they're related to when we pay attention to the pain, they're related to the emotional aspects of the pain, and then to motor control. And so what areas of the brain are those? Those are the prefrontal cortex, the insular and anterior cingulate, and the parietal cortex that are being triggered during uh, pain catastrophizing. Now it's gonna start getting a little difficult from here. Enhanced serum interleukin-6. So when we have an increase in inflammation in the body that is associated with high levels of pain catastrophizing, when we have catechol o methyltransferase diplotype modulates pain ratings, <sighs> What that means is catechol, what it does is it reduces the stress. It reduces dopamine. Um, And so when it is low and the person is, uh, so that means that stress is present, and a person is engaged in catastrophizing, then they are more likely to have post-operative shoulder pain. And that was a study done by george and colleagues there are also genetic variations and neuroanatomical changes that can uh, predispose someone to catastrophizing and fear reactions as seen by the last two studies and the last study just is the most recent um, looking at pain catastrophizing among the fibromyalgia population now psychological there are psychological determinants of pain Um, so we know that people who engage in pain catastrophizing tend to have more severe depression and anxiety symptoms a higher intensity of pain of course that's why we're here Uh, when they have uh, pain catastrophizing behaviors before an operation it tends to predict that they will have pain catastrophizing after or an increase of pain after it also can look at when someone has post-surgical pain Um, And then uh, looking into the future, if they engage in uh, in, uh, pain catastrophizing, uh, that is more likely to occur. It's recognized as a powerful determinant of pain and pain-related disability. You're gonna see that in the next slide. Um, And it's found in patients in low pain and low back pain. uh, And it's a powerful influence on patient sensory and perception and may explain about 20% of the variance in uh, chronic pain intensity in patients now what about its relationship to opioids so last year we had uh, dr beth darnell do you guys remember her from last year so she was here talking about pain catastrophizing in her own study she had looked at um catastrophizing and women and men and what she found was the catastrophizing was the strongest predictor of whether someone was using opioids if they were a cis female However, there's more research studies uh, that show that pain catastrophizers tend to consume more analgesic medications. Uh, They have a greater incidence of adverse effects to those medications, and they tend to have a risk of misuse. And they also tend to have uh, secondary hyperalgesia. What about the psychological determinants of disability? So we know that pain catastrophizers have higher levels of pain behavior and disability, and that's actually written on several one of these different outcomes. Um, however, we also know that when a, a, a pain management includes uh, addressing pain catastrophizing, that they tend to have better outcomes. And when you have an interdisciplinary approach or an interdisciplinary program that includes addressing pain uh, catastrophizing, they have seen improvement as well. Now, pain is a social construct, Um, and so it's obvious that there is going to be a a social uh, aspect to pain catastrophizing. What we know is that pain catastrophizer tend to have spouses, or tend to engage more in that behavior when their spouse is present. They also tend to uh, engage in more pain catastrophizing if their spouse is solicitous. I learned that word a couple years ago when I first started coming to this conference, solicitous. Sounds worse than what it is. Um, and I'm gonna explain what that is in a minute. And then high catastrophizers report greater um, uh, satisfaction when they are su- uh, receiving support from their loved ones. So there's three social responses to pain. There's solicitous, which is the word I, that I just used. What does that mean? That is the patient that comes into your clinic and you're asking the patient to describe their pain and how pain is affecting their life And the spouse is the one that's talking. Or another caregiver is the one that's talking, right? And oftentimes what I have to do is I have to say, I'm sorry, I I like to hear what you have to say, but I have to hear it directly from the patient. I have to hear it from them, right? Uh, And so a thought that comes along with that behavior is, let me do that for you, right? There's a second type, which is the negative response to pain. And this is the best described as what happens when some of my patients try to be more social, when I encourage them to go out with their friends, right? And so I got someone really geared up. She's going to go out with her girlfriends. She comes in next week and tells me that her friends called her and talked her out of it. And they said, you know, you're going to hurt. It's going to be bad. It's going to turn out to be a bad night. Maybe it's not best that you go, right? They talked her out of it. They looked at it from a negative perspective. So an example of that may be, I'm afraid that something might happen and your pain may get worse. And then there's a third type, which is the facilitative type. Um, And this is the one that we want to engage in more. This is to facilitate those behaviors that we want to encourage. Um, We reward the behaviors when it's the behavior that we want to encourage so we want to encourage patients to make sure that they're sleeping and that they're moving those are the two things that we have to make sure all of our patients are doing that they're sleeping and that they're moving and so a way of uh, a facilitative response might be I'm so glad you were able to come out for a walk right now how do we engage whether somebody is engaged in pain catastrophizing there's several different tools the one that i am the most familiar with is the coping strategies questionnaire and it has a subtest that is for catastrophizing alone it's six questions long that's why i like it so much because it's short uh, and it's a five point likert scale and it's public domain, so you can get it online. Right? But there are others. There's the pain-related self-statement scale. Uh, this is 18 questions long. You can see that nine questions have to do with catastrophizing and nine questions have to do with coping. It's a little bit more obscure, but it is available out there. And the last one is the pain catastrophizing scale. I would probably dare to say this is the better of the three. And the reason is is because it touches on the three-factor model that we talked about before, right? It talks about rumination, it includes questions about helplessness, and it includes questions about magnification. It is 13 questions long on a scale from zero to four and usually um you can cut off about 19 and anybody who scores higher than 19 is considered to be engaging in pain catastrophizing all right i'm tired already (laughs) let's talk about fear avoidance fear avoidance is related to catastrophic thinking Um, Again, we know that there are psychosocial factors that are helpful in understanding how acute pain can become chronic or how a a pain condition uh, can become chronic. Um, We also know that they are similar to other variables like pain anxiety, pain helplessness, and fear of pain. But what we know is that fear itself is an emotional reaction to a specific, identifiable, and immediate threat, such as an injury. The fear avoidance model came out in 1983, and it was proposed by Lethem and colleagues. Um, and it was a way to describe how individuals could develop chronic musculoskeletal pain as a result of avoidant behavior. Um, now, there's been a lot of debate over this concept, even though it's been since 1983 that we've been talking about this. And there are several reasons why. The first is, is, is it the chicken or the egg? Does the disability occur first, or does the fear occur first? So the question remains: If fear drives disability, then is it possible that severe disability can drive fear? Um, also, people think that this is too simplistic, that this can't really explain all fear, con- all pain conditions, but it is a good start, and it's a way for us to start gaining some understanding as to what it is that people are doing with these behaviors. So this is the model, and I'm going to go over the model with you. But it's described in the next couple of slides for you later. So let's say you have an injury, right? There are two ways in which you can approach this. There's two extremes to the continuum. There are the avoiders, and then there are the confronters the confronters are going to reach recovery faster because when they are faced with their injury and their pain experience they have a low level of fear and they continue to engage in their physical activity and therefore confronting their pain and leading them to recovery but if someone has the pain experience and begins to engage in this cat- catastrophized. Uh, catastrophic thinking this is gonna lead them to have fear of their pain create some pain anxiety which is gonna lead them to avoid whatever it is that they're doing this is going to decondition them this is gonna make their bodies weaker this may lead them to depression or other some other kind of distress and then that is therefore going to increase their pain and it creates this vicious cycle now in order for somebody to move from the left to the right is that they have to start learning how to confront their pain We're going to talk about how they can do that But while they maintain being on the left hand side they're, they're stuck in kind of that cycle At the end okay. So again the next couple of slides kind of go over and explain that now there are several different slides or several different measures that you can use to see if someone is engaging in fear avoidance the first one is called the past the pain anxiety symptom scale it's 20 items as you can see rated on a five point scale um, and what they oftentimes do in research is that they found that the past is uh, highly correlated with catastrophic thinking There's also the Fear Avoidance Component Scaled, or the FACS. that's also 20 items long, and again, is on a 5-point Likert scale. The higher the score, the more severe they are in their fear avoidance, and as you can see, it's 20 items long on a scale from 0 to 5. Now, there are other measures that are constantly being used now when looking at fear avoidance. And so some of them include the Fear Avoidance Beliefs Questionnaire, uh, the Tampa Scale of Kinesithiophobia, and the Photograph Series of Daily Activities are some of the newer ones that have been used in research looking at this construct. Now, why is this important is because we need to assess these individuals to make sure that they're engaging in these behaviors, and so that way they can benefit from the therapies that are offered or that are available. So what are the treatment options that are available? Well, the first thing is reality-based education. You wanna give them the information that they need. What is the kind of information that patients need? They need to know what their diagnosis is. They need to know what it is. They need to know what is causing their pain. They need to know what is okay for them to do and what's not okay to do. Right. Oftentimes what they do is they walk around and they're afraid to do anything because their provider hasn't told them what they can and continue engaging in and what they can't. Um, And then any other kind of coping strategies that you can teach your patient. That is all the kinds of education that they could benefit from. We want to employ an interdisciplinary approach based on the biopsychosocial model. Now when I learned about the biopsychosocial blah 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 the it's late the biopsychosocial model what I thought it meant was what this slide shows right here is that they were equally uh the same size But that is not the case. The biopsychosocial means that all three areas are represented, the biological, the psychological, and the social. But each one of us is going to maybe look a little different. You're gonna have some patients who have a biological uh, part of their pain that is larger and a psychosocial that is smaller. Or you're going to have another patient whose psychological is much larger and the biological and the social is smaller. And conversely, you're going to have somebody whose social is going to be larger and the psychological and the biological are going to be smaller. So when we say biopsychosocial, we don't mean this. We mean that it's some combination of the three, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy is the most obvious choice, and we're going to focus on that. And then also, you want to look at graded exposure. So what is graded exposure? This came up this morning. Let's say you're afraid of snakes. And you come to my office, and you say, David, I want to start working at the zoo, so you need to help me start being less scared of snakes. So what am I going to do? I'm going to throw a snake at you. That's called flooding. I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to gradually expose you to the thing that causes you anxiety, that causes you to be afraid. And so what I might do is I first might show you a picture of a snake and kind of help you process it, look at your thought patterns, how, you know, what kinds of thoughts are coming up for you. I might teach you some relaxation skills to keep you calm. right? And then the next time you come in, I might bring in a rubber snake. Right? And I might hold it at first, but hopefully work towards you holding it by the end of the session, right? Same skills, kind of being there for you, working it through. The third time you come in, we might decide to take a trip. And we're gonna go to the zoo, and we're gonna go behind the glass, and we're gonna look at the snake, and we're gonna like think, talk about touching the snake, maybe even get the opportunity to have a handler come out with the snake and have you just touch it. Right? And then the last time you come in, then I might have you hold a snake, right? But each time, as we go more and more deeper into what makes you afraid, we're making sure that you have the skills to kind of be able to get through it. That's graded exposure. All right. So cognitive behavioral therapy. So what we do in cognitive behavioral therapy is what we're doing is we're looking at the maladaptive thinking and the maladaptive behaviors that may be affecting your pain experience. Now, there are several different types of cognitive distortions is what we call them, or maladaptive thinking patterns, or I like to call them traps. There are, There's like 12 different traps that we engage in, right? And one of them happens to be catastrophic thinking there's also magnifying or minimizing there's several different types so what we would do is we would ask you you know what kinds of thoughts occur when your pain is present and when though you have those thoughts we ask you you know whether you have evidence to support or evidence that goes against that thought so what's a thought that you might have when you have pain what about it's gonna hurt if i move right it hurts more if i do physical therapy how many times have you heard that right now when you hear that the first thing i would do is say well what has been your experience with physical therapy have you had that experience before and most of the time it's no right i heard that it's going to hurt more or when i try to do something it hurts more and then i go well anytime anyone goes to the the gym and does something new and uses something a muscle that they haven't used before it hurts so it's going to hurt at first but maybe it's not going to hurt if you continue doing the exercise but we won't know that until you actually start doing it right and so we would ask them for evidence for and evidence against and so instead of saying it's going to hurt if i go to physical therapy what else could we say maybe it may hurt a maybe is a little bit better than it's gonna hurt right it's a little bit different now i like to go over this model uh because it will show you how these things are interrelated right so we know that when people have pain it tends to affect the way that they think is that true or false is it true or false True. true correct and we also know this broke and we also know that when you have pain, it tends to affect the way that you behave. True or false? True. We also know that the way that we think affects the way that we behave. True or false? True. So let me give you an example. I wake up in the morning and I have pain and I say, there's no need for me to get up. I could just stay in bed. What's my hurry? Why should I get up? And so what do I do? I stay in bed so you can see how my thought affected my behavior. Now, what we know is that the opposite is true as well, that the way that we behave affects the way that we think. So the same individual who didn't want to get out of bed, let's say it starts to get out of bed. They're motivated to get out of bed because that's what we're telling them. Movement and sleep. You need to move and you need to sleep in order to get better. And they've heard us. And so they're starting to engage in that. And as they're doing that, do you think that that's going to affect the way that they think? Of course it is. And so the opposite is true as well. If we change the way that we behave, it's going to change the way that we experience pain. And if we change the way that we think, it's going to affect the way that we experience pain. And how we're going to do that is by using the different strategies that are on the outside of the model to help that individual make those changes. Now, this is the protocol that I tend to use. It's by John Otis. Um, John is not giving me any kickback. Um, I just really like this this, this book. Um, Why? Because it's cheap, I like cheap. Um, It's also 12 sessions, and it shows you how to use these different constructs with people who have chronic pain. So if it's your first time using cognitive behavioral therapy with somebody who has chronic pain, it's a nice introductory to it. What I also like about it is that it covers two topics that I think are very important when it was working with this population, and that is anger and sleep. Right. Last year I did a study. I don't know how many of you saw it last year, but I did a study last year looking at all the different types of mental health conditions and how they may be related to chronic pain. And the two that came up most often were sleep disorders and anger. Right. And these two are important because, again, as I've said three or four times already today, if you're not sleeping and you're not moving, you're not going to see any improvement. Right. So we need to address sleep which this protocol does address and we need to address anger why is anger important is because we are increasingly seeing a lot of violence towards providers yes i'm going to go there i'm going to tell you about it in the last decade we've seen an increase in provider violence more specifically it's been um verbal altercation but there have been people who have been killed Right? And so it's important that we identify anger. It's important that we talk about anger. It's important that we teach people how to manage their anger because they are angry when it comes to their pain. And as I said this morning in my first talk, this could be related to their grief, their their loss. Right. Now, one of the things that is exciting Um, is in the area of CBT and trauma. A lot of patients who have pain have also had trauma in their life. Now, if someone has a traumatic event, an emotional traumatic event, and also has a physical trauma that occurs at the same time, that makes sense to me that they mutually maintain each other right the best example i can give you is our men and women in uniform when they return from iraq and afghanistan they come back with emotional trauma from the war and at times they come back from physical trauma from the war now during the day if their pain hurts if their injury hurts when they go to sleep at night what do you think happens what do you think they're thinking about the trauma and the pain right and when they wake up in the morning or they, or they don't wake up because they didn't get any sleep because of the nightmares they're having about the emotional trauma, what do you think is happening to their pain throughout the day? It's worse, right? So they're interrelated. They, they, that is the mutual maintenance model. That makes sense to me that you could treat those together. But here is the exciting thing that we've learned is that even in people who have trauma, who also have a pain injury that are not related, we can still treat them with an integrated CPT and CBT intervention, which is on the board. This is also from John Otis. It's 12 sessions long. You can see that there is some cognitive processing therapy, which is specific to trauma work, and, but it also has the cognitive behavioral therapy uh, uh, sessions that are similar to the pain protocol alone now if a person has a childhood traumatic event that occurs and they have a separate pain injury that occurred last week how could those two things be related and it's related in the way that we approach them we as human beings don't want to feel uncomfortable It's uncomfortable being uncomfortable. And so what we tend to do is avoid anything that reminds us of the emotional trauma of childhood, and we avoid anything that reminds us of the pain. And so it is that avoidance that we are addressing in the CBT protocol. All right, mindfulness. So what is mindfulness? So, psychology went through three different waves Uh, the first wave was psychoanalysis and and this is the most crudest terms it's what you think of when you tell somebody you're going to send them to the therapist right usually when somebody comes into my office who's never been to a therapist the first thing they do is they walk into my office and they start looking around what are they looking for a couch there's no couch there's a chair right and the reason why they think that is because that's traditionally what psychoanalysis was. You would lay on the couch, the therapist would sit there, and you would kind of free, have a free range of thought, and they would kind of sit down and write down what you were saying. That was the first wave in its most crudest form. The second wave of psychotherapy was the cognitive therapist and the behavioral therapist. So the cognitive therapist, again, believed that it was the way that we think that affected the way that we felt. And the behavioral therapist said, no, 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 no it's not the way that we think it's the way that we behave that affects the way that we feel and in fact cognitive behavior is integration of those two camps now we are living we are now in the renaissance of the third wave which is the mindfulness based therapies right this is the new wave this is the new way of thinking now, when it comes to mindfulness and pain cat- catastrophizing or catastrophic thinking, the research has shown that using mindfulness-based cognitive therapy reduces headaches, and it's been shown to improve pain catastrophizing. It also has been shown to significantly improve catastrophizing when uh, compared to people who are in a waitlist control. And it's also been shown to be effective in improving pain catastrophizing with people who have a history of depression so what is mindfulness we throw this word around and 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 i don't think that we really understand what that means you know mindfulness is becoming aware it's becoming aware of what is going on in your mind it is becoming aware of what's going on in your heart and it is becoming aware of what is happening in your body and so what i want to do real quickly is i want to do a mindfulness exercise so what this is going to in, in need you to do is to sit back in your chair make sure your feet are flat on the ground your hands are to your side or on your lap I don't want you crossing your arms or crossing your legs we want a free flow of energy going through your body and if you're comfortable you can go ahead and close your eyes and if you're not comfortable you can just stare at me that's fine now what I would like you to do first is I'd like you to notice your breath. Notice where your breath is coming from. Notice the coolness of the air as it comes into your body. Notice the warmth of the air as it leaves your body. Notice what it feels like for your back to touch the back cushion of your chair. Notice what it feels like for your bottom to touch the bottom cushion of your chair. Notice what it feels like for your feet to be in your shoes touching the ground. I want you to notice what your mind is saying. What are you thinking about right now? I want you to notice what your heart is saying. How do you emotionally feel in this space at this time in this situation? And finally, I want you to notice how your body feels. And I want you to return your attention back to your breath. And when you are ready, you can go ahead and open your eyes. How do you feel? Calm. I heard relaxed. Now, why is that? Why do you feel calm and relaxed? Mindfulness is not relaxation. Notice that in no way, shape or form, did I ask you to change anything. All I asked you to do was to just pay attention to what was going on in your brain, what was going on in your heart and what was going on in your body i didn't ask you to change your breath i didn't ask you to change positions i didn't ask you to do anything right and yet you felt calm or some of you felt calm and some of you felt relaxed right so one of the byproducts of mindfulness is relaxation but it is not the practice of relaxation Now, one of the therapies that has been shown to be as effective, and in some cases superior, To cognitive behavioral therapy has been acceptance and commitment therapy i'm sure you've already heard about this today right you're going to keep hearing it during the week the two therapies that have been shown to be the most effective in chronic pain are cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy now acceptance and commitment therapy uses mindfulness as part of its strategy but it is not all that is happens in in acceptance and commitment therapy um, in acceptance and commitment therapy, what we are doing is working with people 's psychological inflexibility. So what does that mean? That means we 're stubborn. we 're stubborn creatures. And it is because we are stubborn is that we 're stuck. And so what we do in acceptance and commitment therapy is we do three different things. The first thing that we do is that we teach people to be more open. If you are open to a different possibility, you're gonna have a better outcome versus if you're closed to the situation, you're not gonna see anything different. So the patient that walks in and says, what I need is four milligrams of Lyrica three times a day. That's what I need. That person is stuck they're not going to see any improvement because they have accepted as that being their reality. But the person who comes in and says, look, I'm frustrated. I'm really at the point of giving up, but I am open to anything you have to offer. That person will get better, right? So we're trying to help the person to be more open. And how we do that is by helping them to learn to accept. And we help them by diffusing their thinking, becoming, Uh, separated from their brain when we are in pain when we are in distress when we don't feel when when we're sick who do we listen to to be our guide this guy right But this guy is not always your friend and so you need to keep him in check and that's what we teach patients to do is to keep your brain in check and not let him go on autopilot and make decisions for you so one of the things that we do is we help people to become more open the second thing that we help people to do is to become more present and how we do that is by teaching them to practice mindfulness just like we just did right what i did was a really short three-minute mindfulness practice there are much longer than that that we do in therapy Um, And then looking at pain is from context versus content, meaning that we are trying to look at different perspectives when it comes to pain. So that's how we look at making people be more present. And then the third thing we're doing is that we're helping people take more action. And how we're doing that is finding out what is important in someone's life. You know, this morning I talked about grief. You know, grief is usually related to when we have experienced a loss or a death, right? Every time someone dies or every time somebody loses someone that's important to them, what do we do? We reassess, right? So we quickly reassess, we make plans, and then what happens? Those plans kind of go to the side because life happens, right? Things happen. And so one of the things that we do in acceptance and commitment therapy is re- Uh, connect people with what's important to them and show them how they can continuously do that even after therapy and then we also help them come up with committed action plans now there's two manuals that are out there that i particularly like and one is by joan uh, doll it's a four session protocol it's the one on the left Uh, she's from scandinavia i just think that that's fun Um, two sessions of individual therapy two sessions of group therapy Now, the second uh, book that's up here is by Joan Dahl and Lundgren. Now, the reason why I show you this one is because a lot of times when I do talks around the country, providers, the first thing that they say to me is, "This is great, but we don't have therapists here," or "The therapists aren't insured. The insurance companies don't pay for a therapist," or uh, "The patient doesn't have money to go to a therapist." And so, what I say is, "Okay, I understand." go ahead and buy this book, this green book, and have the patient do it on their own. There's been researchers, research studies that have shown that just by filling and working out on this workbook, patients have seen a difference in their pain experience. And so if somebody starts doing the book and starts seeing an improvement, that tells me that they need to invest in mental health and you really need to do a little bit more work in trying to connect them to that resource. All right. If you enjoyed my talk today, you can like me on Twitter. You can like me on Facebook or on my website. Otherwise, thank you for coming this afternoon. (laughs) Any questions, comments, concerns, complaints? So great question. So the question was, what is the efficacy of family therapy in pain? So I'm actually working on a study right now looking at that um, because there isn't a lot of research looking at it. So there's uh, different forms of family therapy. um, And so there really seems to be like three that really show some promise, uh, but not a lot has been out there and written about it. So I'm looking at that right now. Yeah, so it's very timely that you asked that question. Yes. Mm-hmm. So is, it a, is there a resource? That's what I would use. Okay. I would use that. Um, and the reason is, is because it explains to the provider what these concepts are. But that it also explains how you can do that uh, with a person who is suffering from pain. And it gives you different examples. And so it's just a nice resource to have. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. And this group of than else in the, study. the catastrophizers. Okay. Okay. Has any other medication or this problem? I am not come into contact with anything like that, but it makes sense that it would, right? Because pain catastrophizers tend to only believe that pain is a physical disease, and so if you give a physical disease a medication, they probably tend to be more likely to benefit than someone who doesn't. Right. So it's definitely an interesting finding, and what I would say is 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 look into it further. Right, and maybe you know one of the things that we i underlined was that there are different measures out there that are measuring different constructs of pain catastrophizing and so it depends on what measure you used what you got and so maybe what would be interesting is, is if you used multiple catastrophizing scales to see if it, if that finding was maintained throughout yeah you use the pain catastrophizing the the last one the third the, uh-huh, the 13 which is the one that i think is uh follows the three constructs but the other two are also for catastrophizing but looking at it from maybe a slightly different angle and it would be even more interesting if all three show the same result right because there might be something else going on there but definitely a, a good uh interesting finding yep all right everybody thank you for coming and enjoy the rest of the week